Uh, if you're joining us for the first time today, we want you to know that you are on our guests. We're so grateful that you are here and that you've taken time out of your week, out of your weekend, to stop and worship God with us. Uh, it's a privilege and an honor to have you, so thank you for being here. Uh, just to catch you up, this week we are in week six of a year-long series that we're doing called Read Scripture in 2021. And our goal is that we're, we're using our Read Scripture app on our phones here to read through the entirety of Scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation throughout the course of 2021. And so what that means is that we spend about 10 or 15 minutes each and every day waking up first thing in the morning or before we go to bed, and we're just jumping into God's Word, and we're letting it change us, and we're letting it, letting it affect us and influence us and shape us into being more like Christ. And so that little bit of time that, that we spend independently going through God's Word, hopefully God can use that to do something for us. And if we're doing it right, we tune in live each and every Sunday morning, and we hear a sermon, a message from me or from somebody who is going to, to teach through what you've been reading all throughout the course of this week. And so through those different touch points, you're going to be learning and understanding God's Word in whole new ways and powerful ways, I hope. So through week five, believe it or not, we have already covered the entire book of Genesis, and we've covered the entire book of Exodus. And so last week, we talked about the introduction of the law and all the things that God expected or wanted for his people. And so, you know, that entailed the Ten Commandments, yes, you know those well. But it also entailed so many more commands and laws that came subsequent to that. And if you recall, below the surface of all of that, before, below the surface of issuing all these laws that God gave to his people, there was this progression in proximity between God and humanity. They got closer and closer and closer, like literal physical proximity, because at midpoint of Exodus, God is up on a mountain, and he's calling to his people from the mountain, and they're down here, right? But God comes closer and closer and closer and closer to these people who are just out here camping in the middle of the desert. They don't know where they're going. They don't know what God's doing, but they're out here in tents. And as Exodus ends and Leviticus begins, Exodus is no longer, or I'm sorry, God's people or God is no longer on a mountain away from his people. He's right there in a tent in the tabernacle among God's people. And so what we learned last week through that message was that, you know, we get lost in all these laws, but those laws are about expectations and relationship, that God's expectations for us make possible God's relationship with us. That's what we learn. In other words, all those laws, all those commands that we have reflect the expectations that God has for humanity, for his children, for those he wants to be in relationship with in order for that relationship to go to the next level, to take the next step and mature. That, that we recognize all these friendships, all these relationships that we have, the relationships I have with people in this room or with you or my wife or my kids or my parents or whatever, all of that has expectations built into those relationships. And so our relationship with God is no different. There are expectations as part of that as well. And so this week, we're turning our attention to the book of Leviticus, the, the much maligned, often infamous book of Leviticus. Because if you have read the Bible before, then you know that Leviticus is uh, a challenging book, to say the least, a confusing read. It is often a book that, that causes Christians to sort of smirk and, and roll their eyes a little bit because it can feel 
just so far removed from the reality that, that you and I live, that you and I experience in our faith today as Christians. But is it irrelevant in our life today? And the answer to that question, I think, is no. Absolutely not. It is so relevant to our lives today. And if I do my job well enough this morning, and I hope to, by the grace of God's Holy Spirit, speaking through me and giving you ears to hear and eyes to see, I hope to show you why. So I invite you, wherever you are, grab a Bible. I definitely encourage you, grab a Bible, open it up, turn to Leviticus chapter 1, and as you do, let's begin with a time of prayer together. And wherever you are right now, whether you're in this room or in your living room, I invite you, just change your posture before God. Wherever, whatever you're doing physically, get on your knees, stand up, raise hands. Let's talk to Him. Holy Father in heaven, thank you so much for just loving us, for creating us, for making us in your image. Father, we recognize that we fall so far short of being like you. We fall so far short of doing the things that you do and caring about the things that you care about. And we make all these mistakes and you're there with us every step of the way to give us a path forward, to bring us into closeness and relationship with you. Father, we, we look around. I, I know the depths of my heart. We watch the news cycle and all we see is a, a broken, fallen people. We don't always agree on, on who the broken people are or who the fallen people are, but we see brokenness. We know something's not right. Something is not godly. And the reality is your word reminds us that we're all broken, that we're all ungodly. And so, Father, would you, would you speak through us? Would you speak to us? Would you bless this time today? Father, may these words not be mine. May they be yours. May you give us eyes to see and ears to hear that you would be glorified in, in your word, even the most challenging books in your Bible. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. There has uh, there's never been a better time, I'm convinced, as I think this week, to talk about Leviticus, likely in your lifetime, um, than we're in right now. There has never been a time where the, the weird things that you tend to read in, in this book, in Leviticus, um, and, and we just sort of like tune out and gloss over and, and, and struggle to make sense of, there's never been a time where I think we'll be able to make as much sense of it as I'm hoping to today. Because at its core, Leviticus is a book that, that is entirely dedicated and obsessed with, with really two things, purity and holiness. Purity and holiness. But the things that this book talks about that can seem so strange, right? I mean, like, what can I eat? What can't I eat? What, what can I offer? What can't I offer? What, what kinds of things can I do? What can't I do? Who can I sleep with? Who can't I sleep with? What can I touch? What can't I touch? And we ask these questions, and before you know it, you feel like you're drowning in this ocean of do's and don'ts. And if you do the don'ts, like, what happens? Do I die? Do, do they die? Does something die? And so this week, as I prepared for this message, my friend Jonathan, I was talking to him earlier this week, and he reminded me a story about a guy named Rob Bell. I don't know if you know Rob Bell or remember the name Rob Bell, but like 12 years ago, Rob Bell 
was all the rage in churches all across this country, particularly evangelical churches, because he had this unique way about him of teaching things that, that other people weren't really like tapped into. And, that, and so the internet and, and media like took all his teachings and made it accessible to the masses. And then in 2011, right at the height of his popularity, if you will, he wrote this book called Love Wins that a lot of people felt was heretical. It was false teaching because it seemed to imply, according to some, that all roads lead to God. And, and a lot of people had a problem with that. Now, full disclosure, I have never read Love Wins, so I can't weigh in on this particular issue. But what I found interesting about Rob's story is that much of what made him famous or notable throughout churches in this country was how he approached the book of Leviticus. And he wrote an article, and it's a little bit long, but I'm going to read this whole excerpt to you. And he talked about the beginning of his church. He said this, he said, in February 1999, we planted a church. It was a church to reach the unchurched and the disillusioned people of Grand Rapids, Michigan. He said, for the first year, I preached through Leviticus, verse by verse by verse, menstrual blood, hold the pork, avoid roadkill, all these things. And he says, why start a church with Leviticus? Like, why not a series on relationships or finding peace? Like, that would be the safer approach. But he said, Leviticus cannot be tamed. Its imagery is too wild. And so we ventured into its lair and we let it devour us, trusting that God would deliver us with a truer picture of his son. So he said, why Leviticus? Well, he said two reasons. First, he says, I didn't want the church to succeed because we put together the right resources. I, I wanted the church to flourish on the power of the Spirit alone. He said, I knew opening with Leviticus, which are foreign words to today's culture, was risky. But the bigger risk, the more need for the Spirit, and the more glory for God to get. Second, he said, unchurched people often perceive the Bible as obsolete. That if, if that crowd could discover God speaking to them through Old Testament law, he said it would radically change their perception that Christianity is archaic. He said, I wanted people to know that the whole biblical story, even Leviticus, is alive. And so the scriptures are a true story, he says, rooted in historical events and actual people. But many people don't see the connection between the Moses part and the Jesus part. But Moses Leviticus is all about Jesus. Every message, he said in my series, ended with Jesus. Every picture is about Jesus. Every detail of every sacrifice ultimately reflects some detail of Jesus' life. And you know what? As I, as I studied this week and, and went through this book and really wrestled with how to teach an entire book in one week, and like, especially something like Leviticus, he's right. About this, he's absolutely right. Leviticus is about Jesus. And I recognize while we're spending a week and not a year like he spent, it's important to me that, that you understand what's at stake because Leviticus matters. In your faith today, in 2021, Leviticus matters just as it mattered 22 years ago when Rob Bell planted his church. Now, if you remember last week, I, like I mentioned a few minutes ago, through the end of Exodus, or throughout the end of Exodus, what is God doing? He's drawing nearer and nearer and nearer to his people, 
camped here at the base of Mount Sinai in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the wilderness, the middle of the desert. They don't know what's going on. And as Leviticus begins, we touched on this last week, God is no longer on the mountain with thunder and lightning and people trembling. Where is he? Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1 says this, The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He's in a tent. He's in the tabernacle, which is a particular kind of tent that God is in. And he, the God of all the universe, the God who has made everything, this holy God is camping in the dead center of this camp, surrounded by all the people of Israel. And what I want you to see here is that God has come near. That's a phrase I do not want you to forget today. God has come near. And so the question is, what next? What next? Now what? What does that mean? What, what do we, the people of Israel, do with this new reality, this new proximity? And what he begins to say next is going to seem so strange to us, so foreign. But here's what he begins to say to Moses. This is verse 2 of Leviticus. He says, Moses, speak to the Israelites and say this to them. When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. And for the next 27 chapters, God lays out all of these rules, all of these laws about offerings, about consecration of priests, about physical and moral purity, about physical and moral holiness, and more. And it can get a little overwhelming. It can even get a little bit gross because how many of you even knew that the the Bible talked about periods or that the Bible talked about nocturnal emissions or bestiality? But it does. It does talk about these things. And so what do we do with all of that? Well, believe it or not, we have already read our very first clue just in the first two verses, and you probably didn't even realize it. If you have your Bible open and I hope that you do. I definitely encourage you to do that. I want you to look at verse 2, and I want you to see that word offering. And if you have a pencil or a pen or a highlighter or some other way to mark it, I want you to highlight that word or otherwise mark it in some way because I do not want you to forget that word because that word does not simply mean offering. That is not simply what it means. If you read Hebrew or if you read Aramaic, this is the word Corbin. And that in and of itself is not important to you. But what is important about this word is that you need to realize that English does not have a suitable translation for that word. You know the funny thing? Neither does Greek. And so the New Testament even struggles to be able to express this this meaning of Corbin. And we see this in Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, thousands of years later, Jesus is going to be confronted by a group of of law-abiding Jewish people named Pharisees. That's the name of the group. This is thousands of years after Leviticus is written. And as Jesus is talking to them, he he mentions offering. He's, He's confronting some of their behavior, and he doesn't use the Greek word for offering. Greek has a word for offering. It's prospero. That's not the word he uses because Jesus realizes that prospero also doesn't capture the essence of Corbin. 
And so he uses the Hebrew or the Aramaic word here, which he loosely defines as meaning devoted to God, because that's how Corbin had, had come to be used by the people in his day, that it was this other pool of resources. If you imagine all the money that you have in your estate or in your bank account, and then you imagine that part of that is dedicated to God, that is Corbin. And, and Jesus' problem with the Pharisees is that they'd begun to see or use Corbin as an excuse. An excuse not to help people to, to do godly things or whatever. It was an excuse that allowed them to, to use Corbin with deep, deep insincerity. And what he's saying is it's what you guys are calling Corbin is not truly Corbin. It's that it gets you off the hook from being loving and generous when someone comes to you and needs help, financial help of some kind. It would be like someone today coming to church and on their way to church, they have this big stack of cash that they're getting ready to give to their church and they see a homeless person who's starving and he's begging for money and he says, sir, can I, can I just have a little bit of that money that's in your hand? And we say, oh, sorry about that. I can't give this money to you. This money is Corbin. This money I can't help you with. It's my tithe. Uh, and and, and, and that's, that's Corbin. This money is for God. It's set aside only for him. And I cannot give any of that to you. And Jesus says, that's so insincere. That is so insincere. That is not why you are, you are claiming this is Corbin. You just don't want to help that person. And so what is Corbin all about? Is it offering? Well, yes, but more than that. It is an offering with the purpose of drawing near, drawing close to God. It is a deep, intimate, relational kind of offering. One of Rob Bell's famous teaching videos when he was kind of at the, the peak of his teaching was a, a road show of sorts. He would travel around and kind of preach the same message all around the country. And it was called The Gods Aren't Angry. And in it, he, he talked a lot about how people had related to the gods throughout history that in all these other cultures and societies, their primary motivation for what they brought to God as an offering and when they brought it and how they brought it was to appease the gods. They wanted to do whatever it took to make sure that the gods aren't angry with them. And so they, they did the ritual. They said the words. They performed. And they believed that if they performed well enough, then the gods would let them live to see another day and possibly, possibly might even prosper them in the process. But that is not relationship. That is appeasement. And there's a difference. But Corbin, Corbin is different. And I like how an article I read this week worded it. They said Corbin, which is the Aramaic version, is a word used by the Semitic people to express a deep affection and reverence. There's a Semitic expression, they said, korbani, and I don't speak Aramaic, so I might be butchering the pronunciation here, which means you are my sacrifice, or korbanek, which means I am your sacrifice. And so the word korban is often used between two lovers to express their loyalty to each other such that they are willing to die for one another. They are telling each other, you, other person, are worthy 
of whatever sacrifice I must make, even my own life. You are worthy of my entire life. And so when Leviticus begins, what we often see as English-speaking Christians is the word sacrifice. That's the word that catches our eye. And what we should be seeing, if we could read the Hebrew, the Aramaic, is the word korban, offering. Because what Leviticus is really just beginning to say is when you come near to me, when you come near to God, then here is how you are to do it. And I recognize that that doesn't necessarily answer the the weirdness of so many of these commands and these laws that seem so strange to us. But here's why I think we, you and I, right now in 2021, are positioned perhaps more today than at any other time in our lifetimes to begin to see and understand why these might seem so incredibly weird. Because I want you to imagine for just a moment what it would be like to not live now, but to live maybe 2,000 years from now. And you come to San Francisco, and San Francisco has changed dramatically. Maybe it's a different people, a different civilization, a different community that's here, or maybe there's nobody here at all. And as you start digging around and examining your findings, you do these archaeological digs and you begin to study them. I want you to imagine your utter shock and confusion as you hold all these documents in your hand and you're trying to read them and make sense of them, to read about how people are being encouraged right now today to relate to one another. How am I to relate to Nathaniel, who's over there, or to Terrell, who's over there? How are you to relate to people that you work with? We would read this and we would think, wait a second, 2,000 years ago, people were to remain masked at all times. You mean to tell me that 2,000 years ago, people were not supposed to share food with one another? That people over 65 were told they should probably stay home as much as they possibly could, or that people were told to stay six feet away from one another, or if, or if a guy was talking or singing, we had to stay 12 feet away from that person, or people should wash their hands frequently, or wipe down the surfaces and chairs whenever they, they use them, or that people should not be indoors together as much as they can possibly uh, avoid it, for a, except for a short period of time, or people shouldn't walk in two directions in a hallway, but just one direction so they don't cross paths. People shouldn't sing. People shouldn't go to work. Like imagine how confusing all of that language would be if you had no context. That is until some expert came along and said, oh, well, that's because 2,000 years ago there was this global pandemic and they were trying not to spread this virus. Like, until you knew that, the rules that you and I are living by right now would seem strange. And so we have to ask, what are all these specific rules in Leviticus all about? As I already mentioned, they're really about two things. They're about purity, and they're about holiness. And Leviticus 10.10 hints at this as God speaks to the high priest Aaron. This is what Leviticus 10.10 says. This is the ESV reading of it. He says, you are to to distinguish between the holy and the common or profane. Some translations say profane. The holy and the profane and between the unclean and the clean. 
And while Christians often conflate these two ideas, like holiness means cleanness and, and so on, they're actually two different things. I'm going to try to make an analogy that would help make sense to us a little bit. Because remember, all of this holiness, cleanness, is rooted in relationship. All of this is rooted in nearness to God, close proximity to God. All of this is rooted in Corbin. And so when I wake up in the morning, first thing, and I decide I want to roll over and give Tiffany, my wife, a really, really big kiss, there's a good chance she's going to kind of like do this and push me away and cringe a little bit until I do what? It's going to be really important to her that I get up out of bed and I brush my teeth first. Or when I've been working under a car or in the yard all day and I'm sweaty and I'm gross and I have dirt all over my hands and I reach out to give my wife a hug, there's a good chance she's going to say, hold on, what do you need to do first? You need to go shower and you need to go wash your hands. And so in that moment, to Tiffany, I am gross. I'm absolutely disgusting. She loves me. She wants to be near me but I'm dirty. I'm I'm gross to her. And so the good news is that I can do something about that. I can make myself ungross, right? So all I have to do is go wash myself and then I will be pure. Then she will want to be with me. And would it make any sense in that moment as she's kind of going like, no, Josh, like, like go clean. If I looked my precious wife in the eye and said, Tiff, this is really not a big deal. You're being ridiculous about all of this. Like, how do you think that would go for me? And I'll tell you, it would not go very well. So as a person, she's entitled to her own feelings, her own perspective. And, and, and she gets, she's entitled to tell me how she feels about when she wants to be close to me. And if I'm gross, she doesn't want to be close to me until I do something about my grossness, about my dirtiness. That is a rough and, and probably admittedly flawed analogy for the laws around purity and impurity in Leviticus. But, but hopefully it's helpful because there's nothing inherently wrong about having dirty hands, right? I can have dirty hands. I've not done anything wrong. I just need to go clean them. Just like there's nothing inherently wrong about having infectious diseases, about having mildew, about having blood stuff, or various other bodily discharges that Leviticus covers. It's just that God says, clean yourself, and then you can be near to me then you can be pure. And I think, again, COVID provides a great analogy for us. Like, get a vaccine, make yourself pure, and then we can all be near one another again. We don't have to put all these rules up about how close you can be and no closer. We all get to be close because we're pure together. The other concern about Leviticus, in addition to purity, as I mentioned, was holiness. And holiness is different from cleanness or purity, and I'm going to try to illustrate that as well with probably another flawed analogy. Because let's suppose for a moment that I was well bathed, and my teeth were brushed, and I had deodorant on, I'd sprayed myself with my best cologne, I'd vaccinated myself, I had all of this stuff going for me. I am pure. Is there any reason that Tiffany might not want to be near me then? And the answer to that question is, Yes, of course there is. There are lots of reasons. If I was disrespectful to Tiffany, she wouldn't want to be near me. If I was hurtful to Tiffany, she wouldn't want to be near me. If I was unfaithful to my wife, 
I guarantee she would not want to be near me. If I was lying to her, she wouldn't want to be near me. If I was abusing her, she wouldn't want to be near me. And I have confidence that if I was a serial killer, she probably, probably would not want to be near me, and for good reason. And that's the nature of holiness. That the things that make me unholy are the things that make me sin against God. If I sin against Tiffany, she doesn't want to be near me. If I sin against God, he doesn't want to be near me, can't be near me, because he is holy. And what's strange in all of this is that I can be one of of four combinations of things. I can be holy and pure, which is ideal. I can be holy and impure, which is totally fixable. I can be unholy and pure, which is a little strange and kind of bad. And I can be unholy and impure, which is like the worst. And so what Leviticus is doing is it's giving God's people a way to be close to God, to be near to God, because nearness matters in a relationship, doesn't it? Anyone ever try to do a long-distance relationship? Doesn't work very well. Nearness matters in a relationship. Remember, Corbin is about expressing love in nearness. And so when I sit on the couch and I scoot over and I put my arm around my wife, what am I hoping she does? I'm hoping she scoots next to me, scoots closer to me as well. When I'm walking down the street and I reach out to hold her hand, what am I hoping she does? I'm hoping that she reaches out and she grabs hold of my hand too and squeezes and enjoys that. I'm hoping she grabs hold of me. When I reach out and I hug her and I hold her, what am I hoping that she does? I'm hoping that she also reaches out and hugs me and doesn't just do this, right? So when I make the first move, what am I hoping that she does? I'm hoping that she makes the next move. I'm hoping that she wants to draw near to me too. Does that make sense? And that's the point. That's the point that I want you to take from all of today's message as we try to take this, this difficult book and, and sort of summarize it and boil it down to, to one succinct little message. Like, what is the heart of Leviticus all about? Where does God begin in this book? He begins right here in camp. He has drawn near to the people. He is among the people. And what does he want? He's made the first move, and he wants them to make the next move. God moved close. Make the next move. That's what Leviticus is trying to, to convey. God moved close, and so if you want to be close to me, you've got to make the next move. And so just like between Tiff and I, if, if I do make the next move, I, I better not be unholy. I, I better not be a serial killer or sin against her. And I probably should have showered. Otherwise, she's not going to want to be close to me. I have to be pure. I have to be holy, and I have to be pure. So God has moved close. And he so badly wants his people to make the next move to be close to him, but they got to be pure. They got to be holy. Why? Because he is a holy God. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44 says, says it so well. He says, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves. It's a fancy word for saying like set yourselves apart. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves. And then he says in verse 45, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy as I am holy. 
God moved close. He's saying, I want you guys to make the next move. I am holy. I want you to be holy. But maybe you're still sitting here and you're thinking to yourself like, okay, but why all the blood, Josh? Like, why all the sacrifice? Like, I get what you're saying, but why, why that? And the answer to that is found in Leviticus chapter 17. In verse 11, he says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So what does he mean? What, what is this atonement word that you're speaking of? Like, speak English. Well, here's what he means. When they were impure, purifying themselves wasn't generally all that hard. It was usually some combination of literally washing yourself plus time. But when a person had sinned against God, when a person was unholy, that was a whole different story. You know, having dirty hands is far different from a, for us than having blood on our hands. Like, you can wash your hands, but you can't really just like wash away murder, right? That's, that's a big deal. But God didn't just leave his people who were unholy in that place. If they were, they would have been there forever, and all of us would be in that place. None of us could be near to God. And so he gave them away out of the guilt, out of the punishment that they deserved. And he did that through atonement. And atonement says that the bloodshed of somebody else or something else takes the place of and covers over the blood of myself, which deserves to be shed. The blood of another covers over me. That's atonement. And in so doing, when God moves close, now what can I do? Because I'm atoned for and I'm holy, I can make the next move and be closer. And so I told you at the beginning that all of Leviticus points to Jesus. And as we fast forward ahead to the, to the back of the math book, if you will, to get the answer to this cleanness problem, this holiness problem, the book of Hebrews begins to help us see something that I think is absolutely vital. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to read the first 10 verses here. I, we covered this in the fall, so hopefully this is fresh enough for you. But let's read it again. The writer says, The law is only a shadow, only a shadow of the good things that are coming. Not the realities themselves, but a shadow. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But these sacrifices, what are they? He says they are an annual reminder of sins. That's what the sacrifices represented. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. He says, therefore, when Christ came into the world... He said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. He's talking to God, about God. But a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. That's not what you really wanted, he says. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, 
Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. This is Leviticus. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first, the first law, the first covenant to establish the second. And so verse 10, and by that will, we have been made what? Holy. Say holy. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You don't just keep doing it over and over. His sacrifice once for all time. And so what we learn and what we realize in reading Hebrews, written thousands of years after Leviticus, is that true atonement never came through bulls, never came through goats, never came through heifers or lambs. Instead, they were reminders. They were reminders of sin and they were placeholders until the coming of the one and only true Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as the Gospel of John begins, the Gospel of John reminds us of of something important here. He says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who's the Word? The Word is Jesus. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. What is He saying? What is what does he mean when he says that? Well, that word dwelling is, is literally the word tabernacled. Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us. Do you, does this sound familiar at all to you? God moved close in Jesus. God moved close. And the entire gospel of Jesus says, make the next move. Church, Jesus is the next move. It is only through Jesus that we have atonement for the unholiness, for the impurity that is in our lives. And he invites you to scoot closer to God, to enter into the intimacy of real relationship with God, not to be masked, not to be six feet away, but to be holy as God is holy. Jesus is the one who makes us holy. And so if... If you believe in him, and if you receive him as the all-sufficient atoning sacrifice for your sins, just as I have received him for my sins, then God moved close and he invites us to make the next move. You can receive Christ into your life today. How? By being baptized into him, by being washed made pure in the water and emerging holy and pure into a new life in close relationship with God. And so before I close, I want to ask you an important question. I'm going to make an assumption. My assumption is most of the people listening right now already have a relationship with God. And so maybe you're tempted to go like, okay, but he's talking to those other people. He's not talking to me right now. I get it. But if you have a relationship with God, here's an important question for you. What motivates it? What is your motivation for a relationship with God? Why do you sing? Why do you show up? Why are you streaming right now? Why are you going to church when you go to church? Why do you give? Is it from a place of intimacy, a place of nearness, of of real genuine desire 
to draw near to the Father? Or is there some part of you which, much like the ancients that Rob Bell spoke about, or much like the Pharisees who, who Jesus confronted, really do all of this stuff just to appease God, just to get him off your back. Maybe you're saying, like, I don't want to make God angry, so I blank. I show up. I give some, some token amount of money, or I give some token amount of my time, or I do my daily Bible reading because Josh just keeps annoying me about it this entire year. Is that true of you? Is that true today? Is that true sometimes? Is there an offering that you are giving to God that is not from a real desire to draw near to God, but just so He thinks that you are just engaged enough that He doesn't reach out and punish you or smite you or something like that? I think, I think we all know that that's not the kind of relationship that God wants. And that's not why Jesus was sent. But I want to ask you to be still, wherever you are, for just a moment, and to search your heart. Ask yourself, just like David, search me and know my heart. Ask him, what's in there? Do you, do you love him? Do you really love him? Do you, do you delight in God? Do you enjoy your relationship with God? When he scoots close, do you scoot closer? And if you're not sure how to answer that question, I'll ask it this way. What would your calendar suggest about how near you want to draw to God? What would your giving, your spending habits, suggest about how close you want to draw near to God? What would your fellowship with other Christians suggest about how near you want to draw to God? Does God get your leftovers? Is that what he gets? Or does he get Corbin? Does he get your first and your very best? Because you actually want to draw near to him. You want to be close to him. You want that self-sacrificial kind of relationship that says, God, I will lay down my life for you just as you lay down yours for me. Because I'll tell you this, when I reach out and I hold somebody's hand, who doesn't want to hold my hand, I can feel the difference like that. I know the difference instantly. You probably do too. And I guarantee you God does as well. God moved close. What does he want us to do? He invites us to make the next move, to draw close to him. That might mean trusting him with your money. That might mean confessing some sin that's in your life that's hidden right now. That might mean going out and volunteering to serve. It can mean any number of things. But my, my encouragement to you from this text, from all of Leviticus today, is don't live to appease God. Instead, live to love Him. Live to be near to Him. God moved close. What do you need to do? You need to make the next move. That happens in holiness. It happens in purity. And holiness and purity come through Jesus. Make the next move. Make Jesus Lord of your life. Receive the Son. Receive His atoning sacrifice. Receive that love. And then delight. Delight in the Father. God bless you, my friends. Thank you for being here. And we look forward to seeing you next time.